0: December 5th, 1907, the holiday spirit was already in the air. Decorations were being hung all over downtown Boston. A full-page ad was printed in the paper for Henry Siegel's touting women's coats for $14.50 and phonographs for only $2.98 in its Christmas Wonderland department. The temperature was seasonal, hovering around 40 degrees. About an inch of snow was left on the ground from the day before. But something darker was transpiring that day. A 38-year-old man from Everett, wearing a black derby, was on a mission. What that mission was exactly, even he didn't have clear in his head, but he felt it was important. He left his mother's house north of the city and headed to Boston. His movements that early afternoon were bizarre, who knows what goes through the mind of someone contemplating such a deed? To him, everything and everyone became an obstacle to his mission. His first stop was a pawn shop to buy a gun, but the proprietor said no. Next, he went to William Reed and Sons, a sporting goods store at 107 Washington Street, about halfway between the old State House and where City Hall is today. There, he purchased a 32 caliber handgun with ammunition, then headed to Castle Island to try it out. His first thought was to test the gun much closer to his ultimate destination, but downtown he felt there were too many police around, and they would try to stop him. So he chose a more remote spot, Castle Island. On the causeway to the island, he stopped by a construction site, picked up a stray piece of wood, and continued on to Fort Independence. He could use it in his test, he felt. With his back to the walls of the fort, staring out into the Atlantic, he held the wood in one hand and tried to shoot a hole through it with his new weapon. The wood naturally flew from his hand with the pressure of the bullet. When he picked it up and examined it, he saw that the stick was not penetrated. In his confused state, he decided that the gun must be defective, so he headed back to the store to complain. The clerk told him that it worked perfectly fine and he would not refund his money. The man headed down the street for a second opinion to another store at 155 Washington Street, Ivor Johnson's, and was told the same thing. Still not satisfied, he walked the few minutes to Newspaper Row, also on Washington Street, home to Boston's many dailies. He headed to the offices of the Boston Globe to speak with that paper's military editor, who was not in. He told three reporters in the room that he had been cheated by the gun salesman. The reporters, recognizing his agitated state, Tried to calm him down and explained to the man that the weapon was of the same caliber used by the military and the police. His gun was fine. They later told investigators that the visitor was barely coherent and very upset. The man in the black derby left the newspaper office, walked quickly to the state house, took the elevator upstairs to the third floor, stepped into Governor Curtis Giles' outer office and began firing. Although the governor's life was spared, the attack proved fatal. The would-be assassin, together with the men who stopped the attack, are now nearly forgotten. Even Governor Guild for all his accomplishments, is barely known today. But it was a traumatic moment in the Commonwealth's past, and it's also history. In those days, access to the governor, any governor, was much easier than it is now. No one worried about safety precautions. Sure, we'd had three presidents assassinated, the most recent just six years earlier, but nobody shot governors or mayors or senators. It was a busy day for Governor Curtis Giles. His morning was filled with meetings, and his afternoon proved no different. At 2.30 p.m., he met with a delegation from Rhode Island. Its members were there to convince the governor to attend a banquet on December 28th in Providence. Guile declined the offer, but gave the men an hour to convince him otherwise. As the meeting progressed, another contingent arrived in the outer office to await their turn with the state's chief executive. They were from the upper echelon of the labor movement. First to arrive were Dennis D. Driscoll, Secretary-Treasurer of the Massachusetts AFL, the American Federation of Labor, together with Arthur M. Huddle. He was the former president of the Boston Central Labor Union. They stood while waiting for the third member of their party, Edward Cohen, president of the Massachusetts branch of the AFL. The exact purpose of their visit wasn't revealed to the governor. But anxious to learn, to earn labor's supporting the election, he was more than willing to meet with him. When Cohen arrived, the three men sat down. Now let me explain how the room was laid out. Off the main lobby from the rest of the state house is the long, skinny outer office of the governor. It was, and is, a holding area for people to wait. About a third of the way in on the left, hanging on the wall, was a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. Below the image were two chairs with backs to the wall and an additional one facing them. Behind the third chair on the opposite wall was a doorway to a small corridor leading to the governor's inner office. Beyond the chairs was a conference table, and at the far end of the table was a rope dividing the room. Beyond that on the right was the desk of the governor's personal secretary, Charles S. Groves. Standing just outside the room was General Jephanes Whitney, chief of the state police. Huddle and Driscoll, the labor leaders, sat against the wall just below Lincoln's portrait. The other, Cohen, faced them. As they sat preparing for their meeting, John A. Steele, the man in the black derby, was heading for his date with destiny. After his earlier visit at the Globe. He apparently decided his gun was operable after all. Steele, with his weapon hidden in his pocket, walked up School Street to Tremont Street, then across Boston Common to the top of Beacon Hill. He entered the State House from Beacon Street and made his way to the elevator. He got off and hurried to the governor's corner office. As he walked in, no one apparently gave him much notice. The outer office was always busy with people coming and going. Arthur Huddle did say later that he saw the man with the derby come in, but he was heavy in conversation, getting ready to meet the governor. Steele walked the length of the room, apparently heading for the secretary's desk at the far end. Without warning or even uttering a sound, Steele pulled out his weapon, turned to the three men, and fired a shot, which sailed harmlessly above them and lodged in the wall. Cohen jumped from his seat and turned to the assailant. Steele fired again, this time hitting Cohen in the left temple. He crumpled to the ground. Dennis Driscoll tried to catch Cohen as he fell, and Steele took aim at him. Arthur Huddle charged Steele and managed to grab his arm, but he didn't prevent Steele from firing a third shot. He said, I had him by the wrist, trying to wrench the revolver from his grasp, but it went off again. This one grazed the cheek of Huddle and then hit Driscoll in the head. He then managed to pull the gun away, preventing another shot. He almost certainly saved Driscoll's and probably his own life, and maybe the governor's as well. Others nearby acted within seconds. The secretary in the back of the room leaped over the rope and attacked the attacker. After hearing the first shot, Police Chief Whitney charged into the room. Despite now being subdued by three men, Steele, the assassin, displayed amazing strength, frantically punching and kicking, making it nearly impossible to stop him. Governor Guild heard the commotion, ran from his inner office, and joined in the efforts to stop the attack. He relieved the exhausted huddle. Steele was pinned to the wall. At that, he unexpectedly became docile, and the police chief was able to march him out of the room. Steele then began talking for the first time. He yelled an odd phrase back into the room to anyone who would listen. Obviously he's still obsessed with the test of the gun. He screamed, You'll find a stick of wood in there. That is my defense. That will show I shot in self defense. Indeed, during the struggle, the piece of wood that Steele had used to test the weapon out at Castle Island fell from his jacket during the struggle and was lying on the floor. The chief was able to remove him from the scene. He brought him downstairs to the Capitol Police Office to await his arrest. Meanwhile, back upstairs, Governor Guild had taken charge. He directed his secretary to call several nearby doctors and demanded that they come immediately while he contacted the hospital. He then went back to his office to gather window curtains and seat cushions, anything that could serve as blankets, pillows, and tourniquets. While waiting for the doctors, Guild worked to stop the bleeding of both men. Huddle, also injured but only superficially, aided the governor. When the ambulance arrived out front, Huddle, Groves, and Guild carried the two severely injured labor leaders down to the front door of the state house. Governor Guild accompanied them to Mass General where both critically injured patients went straight into the operating room. When the reporters saw the governor board the ambulance, rumors flew that he, too, had been shot. The longer he remained at the hospital, the more the story grew. Cohen was unconscious from the moment of the shooting. In fact, he never regained consciousness. But Driscoll was aware of what was happening. In the ambulance, he asked Gild to come closer. As he did, Driscoll whispered to him to tell his wife that he would be all right. John A. Steele, the 38-year-old male from Everett, told his story to the police, but his reasoning for the attack was incoherent. Steele had spent several months at the state hospital at Westboro before being transferred to the facility at Danvers. At the urging of his mother, he was given short-term furloughs, the latest being at Thanksgiving, so he could spend time at home during the holidays. Although he had fits of a violent temper, his doctor said that he had never physically attacked anyone. He gave the detectives three wildly different reasons for what he did. First, he said he was there to kill the governor because he had blocked Steele's mother's request for his release. There was, of course, no truth to the charge. The governor had never even heard of the case and Steele was in fact released. Second, he said that he had been cheated by the sporting goods store He was sold a defective gun, and he wanted to enlist the governor's help in getting his money back. Finally, he said he acted in self-defense. The piece of wood with the billet hole was proof that the three men had fired first. That night, he was charged with attempted murder. At 10.38 the following morning, the charge was changed to murder. Edward Cohen, who was given nearly no chance for survival by the doctors at the scene of the incident, succumbed to his injuries. Governor Guild was scheduled to have dinner with a visiting ambassador on the night of the shooting, but instead stayed at the hospital with Cohen. When he died, Guild comforted his widow and children and made sure that they were transported safely back to their home in Lynn. There's an ironic twist to the story. Arthur Huddle later told reporters that the three labor leaders weren't there just to talk about their particular issues. They were there to ask the governor to consider a pardon for a man named A.M. Kennedy of Salem. In their opinion, Kennedy was wrongly convicted of murder and was serving at the Essex County Jail. What happened to the principals in this story? Despite the indictment, John A. Steele never stood trial for murder. Instead, he was found criminally insane and spent the rest of his life at Bridgewater State Hospital. Edward Cohen, who died 19 hours after the shooting, was honored with a plaque years later. In December 2007, a depiction of it was unveiled on the 100th anniversary of the shooting. The completed plaque now adorns the wall of the third-floor corridor approaching the governor's office. Dennis D. Driscoll, who survived being shot in the head, spent nearly three months in the hospital. On the first day after his release, he visited the governor at his office, walking right past the spot where he was shot. Driscoll was later appointed Deputy Institutions Commissioner. He died on May 23, 1925, at the age of 56. Arthur Huddle, who was slightly wounded and was the hero of the day, amazingly, was involved in another shooting later in his life. He was investigating corruption within the labor movement. On May twentieth, 1931, he was having dinner with two people working on the case with him at a restaurant at 10th and K Streets in Washington, D.C. A man walked in and shot the three of them. Huddle again survived, though. The bullet intended for him lodged in a notebook that he had in his left breast pocket. Six days later, though, he suffered a cerebral hemorrhage during breakfast, and he died later that night. Governor Curtis Guild was a progressive Republican and a good friend of Teddy Roosevelt, dating from their days at Harvard. Prior to his election, he served in the Massachusetts Volunteer Militia, seeing action in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. He was publisher of the Boston Commercial Bulletin. During his tenure as Governor, he was close to labor and was responsible for many government reforms. In nineteen o eight he was briefly considered as a potential candidate for Vice President, but was passed over in favor of James S. Sherman. President Taft, however, appointed him as Ambassador to Russia. He died after a brief illness in nineteen fifteen. He is memorialized with a plaque at the State House. The Guild Elementary School in East Boston bears his name, as does Camp Curtis guild National Guard Base in Reading. Even that doesn't assure immortality, though. More often than not, today people mispronounce the name of the camp, despite his lifetime constant insistence that his surname rhymed with Wild. Thanks for listening. Come back next time for more Tales and Tidbits of New England as we dig out another story from Allen's Archives.